All right. All right, all right, all right. All right. Hey, Al. How are you? Everybody start finding a seat. One of the things I love about doing what I just did, see now, I'll never get people quieted down now. <laughs> okay, we're going to get going here this morning. Now, one of the reasons that I love doing that is, number one, I think just we're God's people, and so we're supposed to love each other and care for each other, acknowledge each other that we're here, but I think the other part is it's fun to watch the people that won't move from their chairs. And you're totally my personality, by the way. I'm just like, you know, I'm just going to sit here. Y'all do your thing. I'll be over here by myself, and I'll be totally fine. And then those of you that, like, have a high people need, and it's just like, <gasps> I mean, it's incredible to watch all of you. So anyways, uh, happy 4th of July. Seriously. Now, let, let me fill you in a little bit. Just so you know, by celebrating the 4th of July today, actually, you're celebrating it on the wrong day. Actually, we voted, well, they voted. We weren't really there. They voted to actually move towards independence, not on July 4th, did you know this? But on July 2nd. <laughs> That's what most people say, what? John Adams, right? Everybody knows who John Adams is, right? He was the dude that was, uh, in fact, he, he wrote home to his wife after they, saw, after they voted that day. The only group that wouldn't vote that abstained was New York, and they're still that way, aren't they? I mean, it's just like, geez. Hey, 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 they showed up, they're like, yo, hey, hey, I got a few questions. Um, but on July 2nd, they, everyone voted except for New York, because it's New York, and the, to, to have independence from, uh, from Great Britain. Then, nobody else knows this, the declaration got written by the 4th, but does anybody know when they actually signed it? August 2nd. I know, don't you feel like just so defrauded? Like we're celebrating it on the 4th, and in fact, we didn't even celebrate it as a national holiday until... Uh, uh, 1941, and to his very death, John Adams refused to celebrate the Declaration of Independence on the 4th of July because he knew what we did on the 2nd. So anyways, just so you know, just filling you in, little facts. <sighs> now we can dive into God's Word. If you got your Bibles, open them up to 1 Peter. We're going to be in 1 Peter 1. We're going to take a little journey, continue through verses 3 through 9. Now, one of the things that we've been trying to do is just to lay out this idea of what does it mean to be a, a, an exile, specifically what Peter calls it in, in verses 1 through 2, is this idea of an elect exile. Now, here's what I want you to do for just a second as we kind of are wrestling through what does it mean to be an elect exile, why is it so important for this day? In Peter's time, they probably, they would have sent him a letter. In other words, his first letter is probably a response to a letter he got from the people that were in, <coughs> excuse me, in northern Galatia. In writing to them, I know probably the question they were asking, which is, what in the world, how, how are we supposed to walk through this? We, we can't figure out what's going on. 
Now, I think that's a question Christians have had to deal with for throughout the years. In fact, I would say this, over the last year or so, Christians have been kind of looking at each other in the same way, going, what are we supposed to do? Uh, what's happening out there? What in the world, right? We're just, we're confused about what's happening in this world, and I love the fact that Peter's writing back to them, and in some way, he's going to explain to them what's going on inside of their world. That was so interesting. I was talking to somebody before the service, and she said, oh, you know, I did some work on this thing that I did through, through First Peter. And she goes, I hate that they call it the problem of pain and suffering, because it's not a problem according to First Peter. There's always, according to God, a purpose in our suffering and a purpose in our pain. And what Peter's going to do with this is to help us to understand that no matter what we go through, what's going on in life, God always has a purpose. Nothing that happens in this globe is willy-nilly. And so this idea of being people that are elect is so crucial to this. Now, by the time we get to verse 3, though, he's going to begin to answer this question in a broader way. Well, then, okay, Peter, like, like well, why are we going this? What's going on in the world? Well, one of the things that you see when you look down in verse 3, go ahead and look in your Bibles there. We're, we're just kind of going to dive in. We're going to kind of hit through some aspects of this. But he says, one of the purposes for which God is doing right now is he's caused us to be born again. Look at that, to a living hope. Every single one of you in this room, if you have come to know Jesus Christ, your world is completely changed. And in there, verse 3, because of the resurrection of Jesus, and things will never be the same. In fact, the way that he's going to work this through as he starts to play it out, and especially goes through the rest of 1 Peter, is everything about how you perceive the world, everything about how you, you acknowledge about what's going on in the world, the taste, the, your understandings of it, have completely changed because if you are in Christ, you have been born again, and you are no longer part of an old family that found its identity apart from God, but you're now in this family, an honorable family is the way it's going to be talked about in 1 Peter, you just see the world differently, every one of you. If you are in Christ, you will never not be able to see the world like you see it again. It's kind of like back, if you remember, right, way back in the day, one of those ancient movies, um, what's the one with Keanu Reeves and he's uh, the blue pill, red pill? The Matrix, thank you. See, this is going to be participation today. But in it, right, they said, once you take, was it the red pill or the blue pill? The red pill. Once you take the red pill, the idea is you'll never see the world the same. And I would say this, as followers of Jesus, when we've come to know him, we will never see the world the same. Everything has shifted. Our appetites, our desires, our longings, which is why that he says in verses 4 through 5, if you look down there, he says in there, now you, you now understand that you have an inheritance. Look at the words he uses. They're imperishable, undefiled, unfading. In other words, now you, you, you're not settling for anything that's temporary because now everything of who you are, your inheritance, you've been born again to this inheritance that's kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last, in the last time. Our eyes are, are now open to the reality that this world is, is absolutely temporary. Our eyes are open to the idea, though, that we are not going to settle for temporal things anymore. We understand now that there's eternity. Eternity has been placed in all these, the hearts of everyone, the book of Ecclesiastes says. But now we have a whole new perspective on life, that this life in its present form is not all that there is. There's more to it. 
In fact, I would say it this way, this life is merely the appetizer for the grander reality of eternity that we spend forever with God. He's saying in there, be so careful how you look at the world and how you evaluate it, how you embrace it, because you now as Christians have a longing and you won't be settled by anything other than an eternal focus on things that last forever. But it's not just that. Look down in verse 5. He, 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 he has this idea there that when he says in there, it's for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, we know there is a coming a day when everything will shift. See, the other thing that we know as followers of Jesus is that Jesus Christ will return to establish his kingdom. And let me just put it to you this way. If you are a follower of Jesus or if you're not, nothing can stop that. Our king is going to come back. Jesus Christ is going to reign and rule forever. All things are going to be set straight. There is nothing out of order right now in this world because of sin that will not be righted one day by King Jesus. Everything is moving that direction. Nothing can stop it. I don't care if you have a Democrat perspective or a Republican perspective or a Libertarian perspective or a Green Party perspective. Whatever your perspective on governmental reign and rule that you have right now, it is nothing because none of those kingdoms last forever. There is only one kingdom that is reigned and ruled over by Jesus Christ that will last forever, period. Now... I think that's why we as Christians struggle with politics. We struggle with it because it just feels so temporal. It is so corrupt. It is so wrong. It is so other because deep within us is an understanding that there is a king who is coming to reign and rule in righteousness and almost nothing else can ever be the same. Our tastes, our desires have shifted. But not only that, look down at verse 6. He goes on and he says this, and he says, In this you rejoice. In other words, you get excited about this. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor and revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, look at that real word there. We're, we're, we're going to go back into this verse later, but he talks about this idea of gold that perishes. Now, the other day I was watching something. Does, does anybody know the, the commercial out right now? You see William Devane talking about gold. Does anybody know, even know who William Devane is? Okay, if you've watched 24, like way back in the day, or the other place, did you know also he was in Knott's Landing? Hmm, good TV right there, isn't it? Knott's Landing, yeah change your world he says this statement though he says the only secure thing in this world is gold that's what his commercial's about now think about this he is making a statement as one who doesn't understand what peter understands the gold standard that we live by that we think is the ultimate thing, whether we're talking first century or whether we're talking right now, guess what? It perishes. There's nothing certain in this world. All of it is topsy-turvy. All of it, he says, and there is grief and trials and testing. 
That's what this world is full of when you look down at it. Not only that, but it talks about the result. It, it talks about this idea that you as followers of Jesus, the only praise, the only glory, the only honor that is ever going to satisfy you is found in Jesus. Anymore, when you, when you think about it, the, the, the praise of people is fleeting. Keeping up with the Joneses is, is tiring. Of kind of obtaining the American dream is losing its luster. We just, we just don't fit here. We as followers of Jesus, his whole point is we don't belong. When you get like to 1 Peter 3 in 11 through 12, you can see this where he talks about this idea, since all these things are to be dissolved, he says in there, what sort of people ought you to be? And we're going to talk about that the rest of the way through 1 Peter of these lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening, the coming of the day of God, because of which, look at this, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. There's coming a day in which this entire universe in a way will be resurrected. What will be burned away from it is sin and loss. That's the longing of the hope of our salvation. And we as followers of Jesus know this. There is coming a day when all of this is going to come end. All of this as we know it. Then he goes on in verse 13. But we have something else. We're waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In other words, I think if Peter were sitting here right now and he were going to reflect on what's happened over the last year and a quarter, I think he would look at all of us and I think in the same way he would say this. He would say the world that is around you right now, it is not your home. I think that's what's been so hard for people over the last year and a quarter. When I hear people talk about, you know, the, 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 just the reality of death, you know, the fear and what might take place, the, the reality of a governmental system that's been all over the place. I mean, you don't know how many people I've talked to where it's like, oh, we're losing America. This thing is falling apart. What's the world going to look like that my kids grow up in? Oh, Todd, this hope that I had, this longing that I had, this, this place as it was supposed to be. Oh, I just feel like it's all falling apart. And I think Peter would look at us and say, yes, that's because you are exiles and sojourners. This isn't your home. You don't belong here. I've used this illustration before. Whenever we travel, my wife likes to hang up our clothes. She likes to put our clothes inside of the, the drawers at, at hotels, which I think, number one, I think it's gross. But number two, I've always been like, why do we have to put our clothes there? It's because I'm more spiritual than she is. No, it's not it at all. That has nothing to do with it. But in a very weird way, our mentality of this world, which is why now Peter's starting to talk about suffering and pain, is that suffering and pain reminds us this is not our home. We don't belong here. Every time we go through the difficulty of the loss of others, every time we go through the realities of losing a job, every time we watch as the economy tanks, every time we watch as, as, as our house begins to rot away and we have to pay for new things to get it moving again, every aspect of life is a reminder that it's fallen apart, but the difference between it when you go back to, especially when you look at verses six and seven, is that our, or excuse me, verse five, our home that we're longing for is imperishable, it's undefiled, it's undefiled, 
fading. It is just talking about, he would just look at us and say, this isn't your home. You don't belong here. Now, let me just talk for just a second because I see some people in here that are in their 20s and younger. Everything within our culture tries to sell you this idea of permanency. Pour your life into certain things because they're permanent. They're going to pay off. They're going to be there at the very end. Let me just tell you this. There, there's wisdom that we need to do, and I'm not opposed to wisdom, but nothing in this world is permanent. Nothing. There are no guarantees. There are no the, the, the realities in which now we can set ourselves up to, to not experience failure and heartache. I'll never forget this. I was sitting across from a, a guy that I'd gotten to know here at Cornerstone, and we were talking about life, and all of a sudden he looked at me and he said, hey man, I'm dying, I have cancer. And we began to talk about his cancer, and his cancer wasn't one of those that was operable. It wasn't one of those he's gonna get out of it. It was a fast-moving, aggressive reality. And this is what he said to me. He said, Todd, I have poured my life, my whole life, into setting myself up and my family up, and I'm realizing I'm dying, and I'm dying with nothing. The only thing that goes to be with the Lord is just me. Nothing. This world is full of darkness. This world is full of heartache. It's a good world. God created it. And we're to enjoy it with everything that we are. But this is not our home. And I even think in some ways, your life and my life is why we get restless. Because we're a group of people that walk by faith and not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. We just know there's something different. Well, what's different in it? Well, look at verse 8. What's different in this is, is that those of us now who have not seen him, here's a key component of it. We're going to talk about faith here in just a second. This world and its system is falling apart, but there's this faith reality that has to do with this idea of those of you who have not seen him, but what do you do? You love him. You do not see him, but you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your not seeing him, but loving him. You're not seeing him, but believing him. Your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. There is no salvation in political parties, and I've said that over and over through the last few months. There is no salvation in an economy. There is no salvation in a constitutional republic. There is no salvation in a despotic, uh, socialistic, I don't know, what's another word? I, anybody? Um, Marxist culture, thank you. There is no salvation in anything outside of the person of Jesus. And again, this last year showed us as Christians trying so hard to find our salvation in other things. And Peter says that the reason that we're having this suffering, the reason that these things are going on is a constant reminder that there is salvation in no other person outside of Jesus Christ. Now, for those of you that are parents that are worried about the world that you're going to grow up in, in some ways, if it's a little more chaotic, I would say this, you have the potential in which your kids might embrace Jesus in a greater way because there's salvation in no other thing. 
If the system is chaotic, if everything around them seems to be falling apart, I've always found in that moment, Jesus looks grand and beautiful. But in those moments in which there's this lie out there that says everything's going to be okay, everything is all right, everything is good, your government has you, your leaders have you, you voted in the right people, everything is kosher, pretty soon we don't need Jesus, we need our government. And it's system. And again, old Peter, I think, would look at all of us and say, this last year has been good for us. And I don't take that lightly. I know many of you have had heartache and difficulty. I lost my dad through this process. But Peter says actually, and he uses this word, rejoice with exuberance. It has been good for us. Why? Because you know all of you that are sitting in this room right now, each of you can point to things that you no longer trust in like you used to. You no longer trust in these things that you used to from the standpoint now that you've realized they can't save you. See, what's going on right now in the midst of suffering and difficulty is, is that God is taking our hands as a good, gracious God, and he is saving us by loosening our grip on this world. Part of the salvation of Jesus is, is that you are not going to find salvation here. And as we suffer and walk through difficulty, this is one of the first things that happens, is our grip on this world becomes less and less. Our joy in finding happiness in things that we thought were going to satisfy us, Jesus at different points goes, oh, I'm going to show you though that those things don't. And in fact, I think of anybody that should be celebrating this year, not because, again, the heartache and the devastation that's taken place because of different decision-making, a, a virus that's been out there, all those different things. But we as Christians of anybody, we have been shown blatantly and right in our face that there is salvation in no other thing or person besides Jesus. It has been month after month after month after month, and I think Peter would look at us and go, now be exuberantly and celebrate that. Celebrate that your claws have been taken back out of there. Celebrate the fact, and this is what I would say like out of Hebrews 11, 1. Celebrate the fact that now your conviction is no longer on things that are seen, but now your conviction is being moved towards those things that are not seen. I think 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7 really has this in there, is that as God begins to loosen our grip, this testing of our faith is what he's doing there. He, he's, he's loosening our grip by testing our faith and showing us there is no salvation about from anyone other than Jesus Christ. But I think the other thing that he's doing, like when you look at verse 4, is he's tightening our grip on our future. Now just think with me for just a second. In an honest way right now, just you sitting there, how badly do you want the future that Jesus has promised? Don't, don't say anything. Like honestly, how badly? Does it consume your thinking? 
Does that state, because he's, he's going to talk about this in verse 13 in chapter 1 that we're going to talk about next week. He says, I want you all to set your hope on the grace to be brought when Jesus Christ returns. That's where I want all of your energy and time and focus to go. I want you to loosen your grip on this world, and I want you to place your grip not so much on the things of this world. Again, this world is wonderful, and it's something that's to be enjoyed but I want you to take your loves, your affections that used to go towards these things that are so temporary, so defiled, so not able to last, and I want you now to take those things and I want you to wrap them around the person of Jesus Christ, your future. Like, honestly, I'm saying that because I've been thinking this in my own mind. How much do I honestly believe this? You know what I'm saying? Not just the pretend stuff. Not just the going through the motions thing where we're like, oh yeah, you know, I believe in Jesus. I believe in his return. I believe in all those things. But that deep in our gut longing for his return, knowing that we will see the King of kings and the Lord of lords and all things will be righted. And I'm gonna put all my eggs in that basket. Honestly. I think that's what Peter, old man Peter, would be saying to us. He'd be saying to us this last year and a quarter, God's been showing you the temporal nature of this world, but the hope that you have in a kingdom that lasts forever. I think there's another side of this. When you look at like Hebrews 11:6, I almost clicked my... I tried to click my slides forward with my car. That's very funny. Sorry. <laughs> Young people, that's why you don't do drugs in high school, just so you know this. There are consequences for that. Is that getting old? I won't go past that. Anyways, let me click this forward quickly. This is what he's doing. I think Peter, and in this case, Paul is looking at us going, I want you to see everything that goes on in this world is merely light, momentary affliction. That's why I want you to see it. I want you to see everything in this world that hits you from the standpoint of difficulty and suffering and trials and testing, and I want you to see it this way, but I also want you through faith's eye, those things that you can't see, those things that are unseen, I want you also to understand, and I love this next part of it, that he is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison. That's crazy. Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, in other words, those things we can't touch or taste, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they're transit, they're temporal, but the things that are unseen, what are they? Eternal. Put your eggs there. Put your life there. I think it's the same thing out of Hebrews eleven six. 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. This idea of this, this truly believing in the things that are unseen but now this one who would draw near must believe that he exists and look at this part, that he rewards those who seek him. Do you believe that this eternal weight of glory is truly beyond all comparison? I would even say this. In your own time with the Lord, one of the things that I would highly encourage you is to spend a ton of time in the Bible looking up what your future life will look like. 
Just be in it. I mean, I was thinking about it the other day as I was working through Isaiah, as I was working through Jeremiah, as I was working through kind of the New Testament in and through 1 Thessalonians, Revelation, and just thinking this way. Do you realize that there's coming a time in which there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more really goodbyes forever, nothing in that kind of a way? And do you realize the most important thing that finally the heart of humanity is that we would live in a place in which our God would be our God and we would be his people? To live in a place in which justice will reign and righteousness will be forever. To live in a place in which now there is no longer the 405. One of the greatest evils ever committed by humanity. <laughs> to live in a place in which racial and ethnic justice will exist. There will be now new tribes and tongues and nations. There will be all kinds of people living in harmony in the way God designed. And everything that we're doing now, all of this weight in which we sit, this, this world that has its temporal nature to it, <clears throat> is merely temporal waiting for the hope that we have in Jesus. You ever heard that statement, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good? Can I shift that around? I think that we are so earthly minded that we are no heavenly good. I think we need to think about heaven a lot more. I think we need to thrust it in front of our kids. I think we need to remind them that this world and its system is collapsing. I think this needs to be a resonating reality. And if you're going to understand 1 Peter, because you're going to see this rhythm of it as it goes through, you are not going to understand it if you don't understand the way in which he has banked everything on the return of Jesus. Now, let me, let me give you a couple of things. We're going to slide by some verses because I'm going to kind of go there. So what do we need to do? with pain. Here's the first one, if you're taking notes kind of through this. For Peter and even in the book of James, this idea of going through pain, it's not if, it's when. Every one of us in here is going through pain, has been going through pain and suffering, or will go through pain and suffering. Nobody is going to escape it. I don't care who we are, we need to go into it with that kind of a mentality. Here's the second one. Your first reaction will be to run. The moment things get difficult, we are not going, we're going to want relief. We're going to want in some way to find kind of rest away from it. We're going to want to run away in those moments. But I think old Peter would look at us and say, don't run. Don't go to Tennessee. <laughs> don't go to Texas. Definitely don't go to Idaho. That's where my people are, and trust me, they're awful. Don't run to governors and governments. Don't run by going into your shell, hiding away from people. Don't run into lies that will tell you that they can fix it apart from Jesus Christ. Instead, I think what it is, is we have to make up our mind at the beginning is that it's not if it's going to happen, it's when it's going to happen, and I'm going to choose to walk through the refining because I know in walking through the refining, last week we talked about I will look more like Jesus. This week we talked about the fact that our 
hands are going to be loosened from this world and placed potentially in a greater way on the world that's to come. Third thing, deal with grief, loss, and pain. Let me just say this to those of you that, that maybe are 40s and older, that grew up in the grand old United States of America in which things have been great and grand, uh, that is unless you missed the 60s and 70s and 80s, but This world as we know it will probably never be like your childhood silver lining that you think of. And it's okay to grieve. It's okay. See, what pain does is it causes us to grieve in those moments as loss. It's, it could be the lo losing of a person. It could be the losing of a dream. I'll never forget the first time my wife and I, we were like so stoked. We'd been trying so hard to be able to have a baby. And I came home from speaking at this camp and she had a little bag for me, you know, that had the little stick in it that said, you know, she's pregnant. And I'm like, I'm not touching that. And, but she, she hands it to me and I'm like, no way. Only to find out a few weeks later, Gone. You grieve those things. There's pain. There's loss. But in that, you have to be careful in what you grab onto next. See, I think what can happen is if we don't cling to Christ in those moments, we will find something else to cling to. Peter's going to actually talk about this all the way through. This temptation in which we have is that the moment that God releases our hands from things, don't grab the very next thing that's going to save you apart from Jesus. Cling with everything that you are to Christ is what he's going to call us to do. I think the other thing he's going to say is, is learn to see through the trial to the other side. Over and over, he's just going to tell us about heaven. He's going to talk to shepherds and talk about the chief shepherd and when he appears. He's going to talk about this idea of the grace to be brought to us. He's going to talk about the day that we're judged before God. He's going he's to throw us into the future because these trials, if we don't see through the trial to the other side to see God transforming us, seeing us releasing our hands from the things of this world, to see the return of Jesus and setting all things straight, we won't walk through trials rightly. And I would even say this. We need to celebrate the loosening of our grip to this world in its current form. Now, what do I mean by that? Now, for me personally, and I've talked about this, I mentioned, I mentioned it other times. For me, what I had to deal with over this last year and a quarter was my dad dying. There was a dream in my dad, like him and I restoring some of our relationship, and I'll, I'll never forget one of the phone calls I had right before he got sick. We were planning the next time that we were going to get together. We were planning that next time in which it was going to be, you know, uh, Andy Taylor and, and, and Opie Taylor, or what's that his name? I don't know. We were going to, you know, go fishing together. We were going to be together. Everything was going to be wonderful. God was doing an amazing work in us, and all of a sudden, that moment when he died, I not only had to grieve the loss of a dad, I had to grieve the loss of a dream. Everything in me was telling me to cling to other things. It was run, it was, it was, it was the myriad of realities that go through your head. But in that moment in which now God began to loosen my grip, let me tell you something. One of the things that I believe I learned more than any other time in my life over this last year and a quarter is that my God, the one who created the entire universe, who reigns and rules supreme over all things, 
He's my daddy. He's my father. And I remember just sitting in my office this week thinking about this, and I realized I had never celebrated that with God. I stood up, nobody was here because you would have thought I was weird. I walked down to this particular room, I kind of turned on the lights, and I sat in this room, and I just go, God, thank you. I'm going to exult in you. Not only, God, did you pry my fingers away from this world, but you helped me to cling to the thing that was greater. You as father, as my daddy, as the one who reigns and rules supreme over all things. This is what I mean. I think the church needs to celebrate way more after this last year. I don't mean weird celebrate. I'm just talking about the fact that in this room, I know as I sit around here, there's a group of you. Your claws are no longer in this world. God has loosened your grip. Now let me speak to those of you that may not know Jesus here just really quickly. This last year, I know for you, has even probably set you off on a chase of figuring out what in the world do I do with this. In a lot of ways, your world probably got rocked as well as you tried to figure out what was happening, as you tried to deal with maybe the beginning, what do we do with death in the middle, what do we do with social unrest, and as we moved along, what do we do with the rules and regulations, and then it came to politics and all these different things, and your mind was probably all over the place, and you were hoping for rescue, and let me just tell you this, that hope that you have for rescue is not found in anything that this world has to offer. That hope that you're longing for deep within who you are of things being made right, of all things being brought to the point at which now we can live in the way that humanity was intended is only found in Jesus Christ. And Peter also is going to look at all of you and say to you, bend your knee to that king. And so if you're sitting here today and you don't know Jesus, or maybe you're somebody that you've played games around church for a long time, there is no better day than right now to bend your knee to that king to acknowledge that his work that he accomplished upon the cross, what he accomplished when he was ripped from the grave, what he's accomplishing right now at the right hand of the Father in making all things right. This family, this honorable family that is still going to go through pain and suffering, but pain and suffering with a purpose. Bend your knee to that king today. Do you hear me? Now for the rest of us, I'd like all of you to stand up. Okay, come on, oh my gosh, come on. Let's go, I know she's already acknowledged we're all getting old, but come on, look at me. I just treated you like my kids. Look at me. Look at my eyes. <laughs> Look at me. Old Peter, if he were standing here right now, would look at all of you if you're followers of Jesus, and he would say to you this last year and a quarter, we can exult in it. We can celebrate. I don't care what you've gone through or what has happened because I know all of us in here in different ways have had our hands released from this world and its system as it exists. 
So therefore, I think what we're supposed to do as followers of Jesus, we are, do need to grieve about it. We need to walk through all these different things. But the difference between the world who has no hope and the us who are people that have a living hope, verse 3, is we can celebrate even in the midst of heartache. And here we are sitting in this group of people that are called the body of Christ. We're a group. It's an us thing. And so with one voice, I don't know, what song are we singing? Ah, oh, perfect. With one voice. Let's celebrate that good father that we have. And all God's people said? Yeah. Oh, we can do better than that. Come on, I gotta, come on, shake it out, shake it out. <laughs> Not only do we need clapping lessons from earlier on, let's be honest, right? The clapping wasn't so hot earlier on. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. Thank you. 